Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, how the economic impact of coronavirus affects different generations. And later, Sam talks to New York Times bestselling author, Samantha Irby. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend. So this week, as Aunt Betty said, we're going to talk about the economy. But trust me, dear listener, it's going to be a chat that is ultimately uplifting in spite of all the numbers we're all seeing. As I'm sure you know by now, those latest numbers are staggering. As of the end of this week, more than one in four U.S. workers have lost their jobs since coronavirus shut down most of the economy in March. One in four. Altogether, since this whole thing started, more than 40 million people in this country have filed for unemployment. Those kind of numbers show that obviously this pandemic is hurting all types of folks from all walks of life. But a question I keep asking and a question I keep hearing other people ask is who's getting hurt the most, particularly younger folks or older folks, people at the start of their careers or in the middle or nearing the end. Jill Schlesinger thinks about this stuff a lot. She is a certified financial planner, and she's a business analyst for CBS News. I called Jill up this week to ask her how this economic crisis is affecting different generations differently. And we ended up talking at length about how maybe those divisions, right now at least, aren't good for us at all. Jill, hi, how are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm good. I am doing that thing I always do when I get to talk to anyone who covers the economy, who thinks about the economy, who is smart about it. My first and often only question in this coronavirus moment is, economically speaking, just how bad is this? (laughs) It is the worst I have ever seen, and I am an old fart. And so I've seen a lot. Mm. And it is by far the worst, deepest Mm. recession, meaning the economy is shrinking at the fastest pace it has ever shrunk since the Great Depression. So 2008, 2009 was kind of a warm up for this. This is awful. Wow. I want to talk about a thing um, that I've seen surface in some of the commentary around how this pandemic is affecting all of us economically. There's a certain level of, and I can't tell if it's just joking or not, but there's a certain level of generational warfare I see happening. Mm. Boomers saying, we're getting hit the worst. Millennials saying, no, us. And then recent graduates saying, I won't have a job to walk into. And so I want to talk about, to the best we can, how this crisis is affecting generations in broad strokes. But first, I want to talk about how maybe the biggest dividing line in all of this might be what type of job you have and what type of industry you work in, which is a proxy for class. You and I are both talking to each other as we work from home. And we've been able to work from home in a pretty uninterrupted manner. And we'll be fine because of that in many ways. But for people who can't do that, it's totally different, right? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the factors that really freaked out the Federal Reserve Chairman, Jerome Powell. And when he Hmm. went before Congress and he went on CBS 60 Minutes, one of the things that he kept stressing was that 
this crisis is disproportionately hurting people at the lower end of the income stream. And Mm -hmm. as you say, you know, here we are talking from our homes, but if you are somebody who makes less than $40,000, chances are over the last few months, you have a 50-50 chance of having been sidelined from work. That is an insane- 50-50 chance. Yeah, that is insane. Do you hearing yourself say these numbers, does it blow your mind still too? Well, you know, I, I've been I've been known to really love these kinds of numbers. You know, I'm a total math nerd. and um, But I yeah. also sort of understand the scale of that. And one of the things that strikes me is, as you're talking about the divides, what this pandemic has done to our health is that it seems to disproportionately hurt people who are fragile, right? So it's at the low mm. end, you find that, you know, black Americans and Hispanic Americans and poor Americans and old Americans, they are at risk health-wise, mm. right? Yeah. And what we yeah. now understand is there's a similar kind of pathway from the economic impact that we certainly mm. know that black and Hispanic younger Americans and those who earn less money are disproportionately hurt economically by this crisis. That is the financial fallout that is so intense. And age is a problem, frankly, because, you know, obviously many new entrants into the workforce don't make a lot of money. And even if you mm-hmm. went to college and you were on a path, kind of like the last in, first out, a lot of companies are like, "Yeah, hey, you know what? We don't need those entry-level people. We'll hire them back at some point. Yeah. That's tough, man. Oh, yeah. It's tough. And I'm sure that there's a whole crop. Everyone finishing high school trying to go into a job right now or finishing college and trying to go into a job right now, they're just literally millions of fewer jobs for them to walk into. And when you start your working career like that, it'll probably affect your earnings for the entirety of your working career. It, um, I, was, I was just looking this up because, again, pointing to the fact that I'm a ridiculous geek, that I was <laughs> looking up this research by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And the thumbnail sketch is that if you're unlucky enough to graduate into a recession, you make about 10% less for the first 10 years of your career. Wow. Now, the bigger problem is that in this crop, I'll call it the people who came out of college probably since about 2007, mm-hmm. that these these kids, you're all kids who are listening, you good kids, um, <laughs> that, that, that you are saddled with more debt than previous generations when it comes to student loan debt. And my concern has been that I feel like millennials have just had bad timing. And that doesn't make you Listen, a bad let person. let me tell you. It's bad luck. It's bad luck. Well, because, okay, like, just for me personally, my senior year of high school, the Twin Towers fell. Mm. Um, I walked out of graduate school into the working world in 2009. This was like peak recession. Thank the Lord, NPR hired me. Um, And now, literally the year I'm like thinking about, like, should I buy a house and save up and do this and do that? Global pandemic. Mm. And let me be clear and say I'm very lucky in very many ways. But I can't help but thinking, even as someone who is quite fortunate, yeah, bad luck, horrible timing. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, economy. I'm, and, and 
you're allowed to sit on your pity pot and feel that way for some short period of time. I will grant you that position and do it. Do it. <laughs> and you are because, yeah, you yeah. know, I always find it a little bit annoying with my cohort. You know, I'm in my, fi- my mid-50s and, you know, we were lucky. It was kind of like you were a moron if you couldn't get a job when you graduated in the 80s. You know, really, it's like that, that, <laughs> like everybody got a job. Nobody. And, and yes, you know, I graduated in 1987. So that meant, and I worked on Wall Street. And so I lived through the crash of 1987. But it was oddly short lived, you know? And that was the mm. weird thing about my generation and even the boomers that the cyclical bad stuff that occurred. It occurred and we came out of it. It was okay. And and so I think mm. that sometimes people confuse good luck with wisdom and smarts. You know, I'm, I'm sure everyone my age is really smart and they're wise and all that. But you know what? Mostly we had the good fortune of graduating into a good economy, of graduating into a good housing market. Like yeah. economists hate when you say things like that, but there is just dumb luck. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to act as if everyone over a certain age has just been lucky economically. I mean, I think of people in my life who were looking forward to retirement mm. when the last recession screwed that up for them. And now as they start to get things back together, those same 401ks have just been hit. Big picture for the boomers and those older, like, how bad is it for them? I think they're okay. I think they're worried about their health. I think they're mostly okay. Mm. Here's the, here's really? the advantage. Okay. Uh, yeah. And and don't send me hate mail, boomers. I like you. I'm not part of your generation. Stand <laughs> down. Um, here's why. It's the old story of those with the gold rule. That's the golden rule my father used to teach us. You know, like a lot of those people already had accumulated assets. Okay. Now, what is the mm. benefit of that? Those with assets are not just able to weather the bad times but they have they have money that's already set aside the market craters in march it starts to come marching back maybe it'll go down again but if you already have saved the money chances are you're gonna be okay here's the problem Mm -hmm. with somebody who is a boomer who maybe sort of has um really thought like i really want to retire soon but i need six more years to get money into my retirement accounts and you just get laid off. That's a danger. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I was thinking in prepping for this interview and all these generational questions and commentaries we got from listeners and just all across the web, what is it about America and Americans that we so lean into this idea of generations almost being pitted against each other? It can't be this way all over the world, Mm. but like everything that happens to us in this country, we find a way to make it, oh no, it's millennials' fault. Actually, it's Gen X's fault. Actually, the boomers. Ah! Is that uniquely American or just the nature of people at different ages? Well, since um, I have lived abroad for exactly one semester and four months, um, let me speak freely (laughs) as an expert on it. You know, I I think it's a, a capitalist system that has shredded the social safety net in many ways. And the difference of not having security, um, not having access to education that's affordable, or not having access to health care, or not having a government that will swoop in and say, you know what, 
forget about unemployment insurance. We're just going to take over the payroll for all these companies and just pay 80% during the pandemic. And that's what we're going to do. Not having that kind of robust safety net does tend to make it feel like a Hunger Games. And in a Hunger Games, Mm. you are like freaking fighting for your own. And you're looking for the enemy. Uh-huh. And as again, like sometimes bad things happen and it's not anyone's fault. And it's not the boomer's fault and it's not the millennial's fault and it's not the Gen Xer's fault. And that feels very much like a dissatisfying answer to so many. And I mm-hmm. think that if we felt taken care of, then I don't think we would turn against each other as much i know that you're mm. probably thinking i'm some sort of weirdo socialist and i'm not i really love capitalism no, I, I really i do <laughs> but unfettered capitalism without having companies take a more active role in putting their employees before they put their shareholders those are the kinds of things i think that have really made us so cynical and on top of that mm-hmm. which i know you know about that your world of politics is and if you're cynical about your work and you're cynical about government and you're cynical about life, mm-hmm. then you're just going to blame whoever's there. You're cynical so. about everything. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You will blame and folks will exploit that blame and then everyone's just unhappier. I know. <laughs> totally. You know, it's so interesting thinking about what the storylines will be about this latest wrinkle in all of our economic stories. And what I hope doesn't happen is that like one generation's bad luck becomes a narrative about them. Mm. Like, do millennials continuing to stumble into recession after recession, does that end up becoming a value judgment about millennials? Yeah. I I have um, really become a, a student of that. It is not... It's not natural that you take your disdain for a group and spread it out over all these people. Yeah. It's just, just have a little compassion, have empathy, and understand that your first impulse of blame is mm. probably the wrong one. Mm. I like that. Let's not make this the Hunger Games. Bless the Gen Zers. Bless the millennials. Mm-mm. Bless Gen X. Bless the boomers. Everyone in between. I like the message of this chat. It's pretty good. Thank you, Jill. My pleasure, Sam. Thanks again to financial planner and CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. All right, time for a break. Coming up, we're going to have a little fun. I'm going to reconnect with a friend of the show, Samantha Irby. She is the New York Times best-selling author of a new collection of essays called Wow, No Thank You. We'll talk about that for a bit, but also Samantha will tell me about a daily newsletter she puts out about something you'd never expect, a small claims court reality TV show. Yeah, he's like a curmudgeon. Uh, He's from Detroit. He's grizzled old black man who like tells it like it is, but it's all tough love. And the cases he gets are all bananas. Yes. That is after the break. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the puzzle game that has an engaging story and engages your brain. With thousands of puzzles that update monthly, there is always a new challenge to master. Best Fiends is the five-star rated puzzle game that can be played anytime and anywhere. No internet required. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play for free. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. 
Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit betterhelp.com minute to learn more and get 10% off your first month. There's no getting around it. The coronavirus pandemic has upended everything. And daily decisions made by the White House and Congress will radically impact the human and economic toll. To keep up with the latest, join us on the NPR Politics Podcast. We'll cut through the noise and let you know what decisions are being made and how they affect you. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Question for you. Have you ever watched Judge Mathis? I believe in tough love with emphasis on the love. Yes, Judge Mathis, the daytime court TV show where the claims can't be more than a few thousand dollars, but the drama is priceless. You are in your house, but you're very small in the eye of the world. Well, I have watched Judge Mathis. I'm a judge to make a difference. And so is my next guest. She's actually watched that show a lot. So I have a daily newsletter called Who's on Judge <laughs> Mathis today? That is friend of the show, Samantha Irby. She's a comedian, a blogger, and a New York Times best-selling author, number one bestseller, of her latest book, Wow, No Thank You, a collection of essays. But all those jobs, they pale in comparison to the Lord's work that Samantha is doing right now. She's writing daily recaps of Judge Mathis episodes, Judge Mathis cases, as if she were his personal court stenographer. So, dear listeners, right here, right now, on week 3047 of this pandemic, Samantha Irby is going to explain to you why maybe what we all really need during this time are Judge Mathis recaps. I take a case and I... Being generous, transcribe what happens in the case with some supplemental color commentary and uh, anecdotes from my own life. Sam, this was a bit like this was a <laughs> Twitter joke. I was wa- so I have been watching Judge Mathis since he came out i've when i lived in chicago i probably went to like seven tapings and we should clarify right here judge mathis is in the vein of the judge judy daytime reality court shows (laughs) yes he is in my opinion the spiciest and most lovable of the daytime judges yes yeah he's like a curmudgeon uh he's from detroit he's grizzled old black man (laughs) who like tells it like it is but it's all tough love and the cases he gets are all bananas yes defendant tanisha tarver says when she first met elvie he tried to impress her by showing her his credit score and salary and the reason she ignored him on their second date was because he was intoxicated. Even the ones that are like kind of normal, because he, and here's where I think he's different. I, oh my, I can't believe I'm talking about this like I have studied it, but where I think he's different from the others is he is very good at weaving a narrative because not everyone is a storyteller <laughs> and not everyone is compelling. So he gets these people And even the ones where it's like, oh, my God, she's hopeless. She cannot tell us what this case is about. That she had ha, 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 
bad word saying good luck he getting helps to kind of craft the narrative while also being the judge and he's so good at it holder it was only my name she did not was have she the... on it with your approval ma'am yeah that's what i ask you um i am obsessed with him so i made this joke on twitter where i was um i said who would be interested if I wrote a recap of what's happening on Judge Mathis right now? And many, a surprising number of people responded. And so now we, I've, I've done over 100 of them. you have thousands of subscribers at this point. I have like 7,200 subscribers. Oh my God. <laughs> I want you, for those that are on the fence about subscribing to your Mathis newsletter, read one of the intro graphs to any of your entries of your choosing. They're all good. I was reading the one the other day where the woman ends up having her daughter sleep with her boyfriend while she gets locked up because they tried to get her locked up. Oh, my God, it was drama. But anyone you want to read can be good. Okay, this is from issue number 100, Plaintiff. Lauren from Fairburn, Georgia. Lauren is gorgeous, and you know I love watching pretty girls fight. If you squint, she kind of looks like Gina Rodriguez. I mean, not really, but a little. Anyway, she's wearing a fitted black skirt suit with an extremely snatched waist. I'm talking 18th century steel-boned corsetry, and her skin is blushed and bronzed, and whatever she wants to sell me, I'm buying. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens to this, uh, to our hero in this episode? So Lauren hired a woman to throw her a 30th birthday party. The woman she hired was named Zsa Casanova. Defendant Zsa Casanova insists she did everything Lauren hired her to do. So she sues Zsa for almost $5,000 for a birthday party Zsa was supposed to organize for her. But Zsa, this is my favorite kind of twist, had a video of the party. All right, let's look. Because I had all of that. And Lauren looked like she was enjoying herself. And Zsa had built a custom casket because Lauren wanted a death to my 30s oh my birthday party. And there's a picture of Lauren twerking next to the casket. I mean, it was incredible television. <laughs> So you have been recapping, at this point, more than 100 of these types of episodes. <laughs> what big trend lines have you seen from all this Mathis content in terms of, like, human behavior? What does it all say about us and who we are? <laughs> <laughs> I will say that a thing that is surprising to me and almost uplift, makes me hopeful, is that people do lend people lots of money and try to help them a lot more than you would think, right? I watched this case yesterday where this woman went to the bank 
and got a loan. Uh, maybe she didn't go to the bank because it was a high interest loan. So maybe it was like <laughs> a payday loan. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But she went and got this loan for this guy she had been dating for three months. And, you know, I could be cynical and say, you fool, you barely know him. Of course, he didn't pay you back. But I'm choosing to be nice and think that's a very nice thing to do for a man you met on plentyoffish.com. <laughs> There's good somewhere in there. Look at me being an optimist. Come on. I'm here for it. We need it right now. <laughs> All right, time for a break. When we come back, we play my favorite game, Who Said That? With Samantha Irby. BRB. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. The news has been hard to escape. So take a deep breath and join us for NPR's All Songs Considered. It's more than a music discovery podcast. It's relief with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday as we share the week's best new albums and lots of music to calm the nerves. Hear All Songs Considered wherever you get podcasts. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders here with the number one New York Times bestselling author, Samantha Irby. Hello. Hello. We just talked a lot about Judge Mathis, which was delightful, but we're not (laughs) done with you yet. Will you play a game with me? Yes. Thank you. It's my favorite game. You've played it before on this show years ago. It's called Who Said That? Oh my God. I did terribly at it. I'm going to try to do better this time. (laughs) Well, this is a weird week to play this game because it's like a fun quiz game about the week of fun, wacky news. And the news has just been really depressing this week. Mm -hmm. So we went out on the lookout for just really benign foolishness and we found some and i'm happy to say it's going to be a few minutes of not nasty news from the world this week oh thank god okay i'm ready i love wacky foolishness there you go there you go then this game is for you all right first quote i can name a list of 100 things more important right now than fixating on how much money i have who tweeted that Oh, this, okay, I'm obviously too online because I know (laughs) that it was Kylie Jenner. Oh my goodness, you're quick because that story just came out. (laughs) Apparently, I follow all of the wacky foolishness people online because that's been in my feed multiple times. (laughs) It's really amazing. So that tweet comes from Kylie Jenner of the Jenner Kardashian clan. She was responding to this Forbes article that says she isn't as rich as everyone thought she was. Now, we all know that Forbes magazine itself declared her the youngest self-made billionaire like ever because of her lip kit cosmetic line that really went gangbusters. She was on the cover of Forbes. But now Forbes has investigated and says um, the math doesn't add up. <laughs> She's not actually that rich. When you saw that, were you like, sounds about right or whoa? I was surprised only because as a like regular person who has had some articles written about her, I have been like fact-checked into the ground. And so I <laughs> thought it was weird that Forbes 
didn't do the math. Like, I'm never answering another fact checker question Oh, yeah, because you don't have to. Yeah, why? Let's call it right now. Samantha Irby, you're a billionaire, too. I am. A self-made one (laughs) at that. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. This next quote is also about a very rich person. The quote is, this is not a Harry Potter spinoff. Who said that? J.K. Rowling? Yes. I just love how no one can say anything bad about her. Everything she does, you're like, yep, you're right. You're great. You're (laughs) awesome. Stay rich. Is she writing another book? She is. So she tweeted this week about writing a new standalone fairy tale. Uh, It's called The Ichabog. She wrote it 10 years ago and then hid the manuscript away in her attic. She wanted it to just be personal and for her family, but now she's going to release it to kids or to all of us for free on her website during the lockdown. She'll release a couple of chapters every week, and she began doing that this Monday. Wow. Imagine if you even can being a writer who can afford to put an Give entire book manuscript <laughs> away, like, mm, no, I don't care. I, yeah. Oh God, every, I'd try to monetize my tweets if I could. <laughs> I cannot imagine <laughs> having a whole manuscript and being like, mm, no, just going to keep that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right, last quote. And you, uh, you might not know who said it, but guess what story I'm talking about. The quote is, I'm on this bike every day. So if I can get on the bike and have people donate for me doing miles to help others, I'm all in. What's uh, the most well, famous bike in the country right now? The most famous? The Peloton, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Whew. How do you feel about the Peloton? I'm so tired of that thing. I mean, I thought the, that roasting the commercial was funny, but, yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I feel like if you have one, you are rich and have a place to put it, so then good for you? I don't know. <laughs> yes, I agree. I agree. <laughs> Peloton's back in the news this week because um, there's going to be a charity Peloton all-star ride. ESPN is teaming up with Peloton for a celebrity ride this weekend, a 20-minute Peloton race. There's going to be 16 athletes total, some Olympians. It's going to happen May 30th, and they're going to raise money for charity. But I'm just like, who wants to watch famous athletes ride a stationary bike for 20 minutes? How I don't even know how that would work. It's oh, I so, mean, have we gotten that bored in quarantine? I maybe. Well, they're also getting the big athletes to do this stuff. So that quote that I read, it's actually from Miami Dolphins defensive back Adrian Colbert, a current NFL star. He's going to do this Peloton ride. Okay, I mean, I'll tune in. I love to watch a big man on a bike. So <laughs> <laughs> count me in. It is funny how, like, Peloton is, like, low-key the winner of everything. Like, when that ad came out around Christmas time last year, this ad of a man gifting his wife the Peloton stationary bike, which everyone kind of said, that's dumb. After that, the Peloton kept selling. And after quarantine began, it sold even more. Like, mock Peloton, if you will, they figured it out. They're making people buy a $2,000 bike, and we won't stop buying it. Yeah, they are laughing all the way to the bank, which is exactly the American way. I'm into it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 
Speaking of the American way, you are a winner. You won the game against yourself. Thank you. Oh, Samantha Irby, thank you so much. We'll uh, talk before the next bestseller. Okay. Thank you, Sam. Thanks again to Samantha Irby. Her newest book, number one New York Times bestseller. It's out now, and it's called Wow. No, thank you. It's a collection of essays. All right, now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, I ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They always do. Let's listen. Hi, Sam. This is Sarah in Washington, D.C. And the best part of my week was that I graduated college on my front porch with my four roommates. Um, We Zoomed in our families to our online ceremony with a bottle of champagne in our pajamas. And it honestly was a super sweet graduation. Hey Sam, it's Cecily from West LA. I'm a web designer who works from home, so the lockdown hasn't affected my work much. But I had a missing hole in my heart, so the best part of my week is that I adopted a rescue dog, a little 12-pound brindle pug. Hey Sam, this is Mackenzie from Philadelphia, PA, and the best part of my week was being able to bring my two cats home from the hospital. After five years and nine months, I finally defended my PhD dissertation in chemical engineering at the University of Michigan. I got to retire after 38 years as a police officer or police chief. To make things even better, I proposed to my girlfriend and she said yes. Hi Sam, this is Sarah. And I'm Dan. We're from Madison, Wisconsin. And the best part of our week is that we got married. married. The best thing about my week was a surprise visit from my daughter. She drove 500 miles round trip from their home in Rochester, Minnesota to our home in South Dakota to spend just one hour with me. It was a surprise for Mother's Day and my birthday. It was really the best gift a mother could have ever received. Um, So thank you so much, Sam. Love the show. Enjoy the rest of your week, Sam. We love the show. I hope your week was as good as mine. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Many thanks to all those listeners. Susan, Sarah, Dan, Lydia, Mackenzie, Cecily, and Sarah. Listeners, you can be a part of this segment. Just record yourself or make a video and send that file to us at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, listeners, one last thing. The whole month of June, we'll be doing a series on faith and spirituality. Lots of conversations about uh, belief stuff. I'll be talking with actors and comedians and musicians and writers and a lot of y'all, listeners, about what your faith has meant to them, especially during this pandemic. Trust me, it's a series of conversations that you can get into Whatever your belief sitch is, it's for all of us, okay? I promise. Check it out. It's going to be uplifting. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, Andrea Gutierrez, and Hafsa Fatima. We had engineering help from Gilly Moon. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hokeman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening. Stay safe. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.